Well, good morning, church. Uh, it was sort of funny. I'm not sure what happened to that label. You got the label? It, this was on my seat. It said, caution, do not, I don't know. There you go. It was on my chair, and I put it next to me. And um, I said, maybe we need to be cautious of who's sitting next to me or you. I don't know. Uh, but I, I, Pastor Dave had something to do with that, I believe. And I said, that's sort of funny because that's how I'm actually starting today's message, looking at some warning labels. Um, I, I'm an avid reader of products that I use or purchase. A lot of times I'll open them up and I'll look and see, okay, what warning label's on here? What do I need to know? Not necessarily how do I just put something together, not put it together, but what should I not do? So sometimes I'm, I, I'll read those, and other times I look and I'm like, who put these in here? Who doesn't know how to put this together, right? But on occasion I will look over those things because I want to be prepared. I don't want to get harmed. Well, I was reading the warning labels uh, in a little article by Reader's Digest. So as you can imagine, if you've ever remember the Reader's Digest, some of the humorous warnings. And here's a few I thought were rather funny. I'm thinking, who puts these kinds of warning labels on these products? For example, on a wheelbarrow, not intended for highway use. I don't know who's taking their wheelbarrow out on the highway, but it's a good thing they had that warning label on there so we don't have a lot of those going on, right? If you ever see anybody on a wheelbarrow on a highway, they obviously didn't read the label. Okay, here's another one. This is a warning label on a baby stroller. Remove the child before folding. Good one. Warning label on a carpenter's electric drill. This product not intended for a dental drill. That's a, that's a good idea, okay? If you ever go into your dentist office and they've got, you know, a little craftsman or, you know, they've got something in their hand, just, just give a heads up, okay? Warning label on a dishwasher. Do not allow your children to play in the dishwasher. Parents, that's not how you give your kids a bath, okay? Just saying that. Warning label on an iron-on shirt pattern, okay? This is on a shirt pattern. You're going to iron on to a shirt. Do not iron while wearing the shirt, Warning label on a Razor scooter. I think a little reader boy got a scooter, right, for birthday or something. Yeah, or Miles, no, you just got it, right? You used your birthday money. Okay, I don't, check out your scooter. This was on a Razor scooter. Warning, this product moves when used. Does it, did it move when you were using it? They warned you. Good, okay. Warning label on a hair dryer. Do not use while sleeping. I don't even know where to go with that one, okay? Warning label on a brass fishing hook. How many fishermen here? How many fishermen here? Awesome. Make sure you read this. Harmful if swallowed. Okay, just don't put it in your mouth, right? Fish's mouth. Last one. Warning label on a can of pepper spray. May irritate your eyes. I think that's the whole point. I'm just saying, okay? Now, listen, these warning labels, I don't think they're meant to be funny. But when you look at them and you speak to even to the simplest of minds and advise them with this, you have to sit back and laugh and say, really, who put these on here, right? Warning labels are meant to inform us, to advise us, to cautious us, right? Sometimes they do a really good job, but I want to show you another warning label, which isn't as funny. It's a little more alarming, right? So turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look in verses 1 to 5. 2 Timothy 
chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. And it's in this scripture where we started last week, and I said, we're going to be here for a little bit because Paul really wants to share with us through the work of the Holy Spirit what's going to be happening in the last days. It's like a warning label given to us right here in God's Word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, I'll start in verse 1. Paul says this, You should know this, Timothy, that in these last days there will be difficult times. For people will love only themselves and their money. We talked about that last week. They will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They'll be unloving, unforgiving. They will slander others. They'll have no self-control. They'll be cruel. They'll hate what is good. They'll betray their friends. They'll be reckless. They'll be puffed up with pride. They'll love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious, but they will reject the power that can make them godly. Stay away from people like that. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul pens this. He writes this out. He says, Timothy, you need to know this. We talked about this last week. That When he said no, this is of utmost importance. If you're going to hear anything, make sure you hear this. This must be known. It must be acknowledged. So as you read this, it's like, well, what do we need to know? What do we need to acknowledge here? Paul says, this is what you need to know. In these last days, it's going to get dangerous. It's going to get fierce. We were warned 2,000 years ago that our world would become a dangerous place. We live in a world today where we're waking up to a harsh reality that we are living in an exceedingly fierce time. And I'm not just talking about natural disasters that seem to happen one right after another, but we're talking about the evil of mankind, whether it's the violence, the shootings, whether it's the decisions that are being made that just seem so wicked. Right? So I asked you last week, and I'll pose this question again to you. How then should we as believers respond to this? In the world that we're living in now, parents, how do we respond to this? Grandparents, how do we respond to this? Young people, how do we respond to all this that's going on around us? The wickedness, the decline in morals. Should we stay in our houses and close the blinds and act like we don't see it, avoid it? Should we never fly on a plane or go to uh, a store or go on vacation for fear of what might happen in an airport or what might happen on a train or in a vehicle? Maybe we shouldn't send our kids to school. Maybe we just sort of lock ourselves at home. Don't go to the mall. Don't go anywhere. See, the situation, though, in today's world can very easily cause us to have fear and worry and anxiety. But I don't believe that's the way it's supposed to be for us as believers in Jesus Christ. We step, step back and look at this and we believe that maybe this is the time where we as Christians step up and use the authority of Jesus Christ that he gave us to bring deliverance, to bring freedom, to bring peace in places where the devil has caused harm and chaos. The situation existing in the world today is our opportunity to let the power of God's Spirit work through us and for opportunity for the glory of God to shine through us as Christians. As Christians, to, to hide and to fear and to worry does not help this world. 
when we know that there's a God who rules over all things and that His Spirit rules in us and lives in us, is our opportunity as Christians and to stand up in a world like this and to shine for Him. So let the world know that there is an answer, that there is peace. God's chosen us to be a part of this special generation so that we can shine His glory and the power of His Spirit in the darkness that exists in so many places and so many people's lives. We're fully equipped. We are fully equipped by the Spirit of God to glorify Him without compromising in these difficult times. But what will these times look like? So we started off last week talking about the love of money and the love of self and how that just seems so prevalent today. Well, now we look into the next part of the Scripture where it says, let's read this, they will be what? Not only love themselves and their money, it says they will be boastful. They'll be proud. They're scoffing at God or blaspheming. They're disobedient to their parents or ungrateful. They consider nothing sacred. When you look at verse 2 and you see what's there, there's those first three things is really what we're going to focus on is the boasting and the pride and the scoffing and the blasphemy. Because each of them basically do this. All three of those basically do this. They basically say, I am the most important person around here. Nobody else really matters. God doesn't matter. It's all about me. Each of them basically said, I don't need God in my life to tell me what to do. Now, the word for boasters is azalazon in Greek. And, and again, a lot of times, and I've, I don't throw around the Greek words a lot, okay? I don't like doing that, but I'm, I'm going to be using them a lot in this series because I want you to understand that each of these words paint a picture uh, help us understand what we're talking about here. And this word is used only twice in the New Testament. I love how Paul's done this. Paul's gone back here in 2 Timothy 3, like last week, and he said, I've, I've only used this word one other place we find it in the New Testament. And he does the same thing this week when he talks about boasting. And we can find this other one in Romans 1.30, and we'll go to that in a little bit. But this is a person who's basically a bragger. They're a show-off. They boast all the time. They're so committed to their own self-promotion of themselves that they're willing to they'll exaggerate, they'll overstate the facts, they'll, they'll take that, that truth and they will stretch it big time. Why do they do that? Because it makes them feel good about themselves. They want to promote their position to a higher spot. And today we might call this even situational ethics where they know this is the way it is, but they're going to stretch it to make it better for themselves. You adjust your morals, your beliefs, your convictions to fit any situation. It's doing and saying whatever you must do to further your agenda, even if it clashes with your conscience and conviction. You know God's Word says this, but you know what? That's not fitting me right now because I need to lift myself up to a higher spot. So that situation doesn't work for me, so I'm going to sort of change it up a little bit. This is better for me. This is what Paul's talking about. It's replacing moral absolutes with basically floating ethics, if you want to call it that. The rights and wrongs that are concretely stated in the Bible are now basically determined as being obsolete, old, out of date. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, that's, that's in the Bible, that's old stuff. That doesn't apply to me now. Have you ever heard those kind of sayings before when it comes to things in the Bible? And you're like, oh, well, that was back then. Our, our culture is so different now. We know that right now, 
in our nation, there are a minority of people who are driving and pushing to have Bibles removed from government offices, from schools, from courthouses. We know that that same group is trying to get the name of God and Jesus Christ out, trying to replace it, trying to remove it. The mention of God is being forsaken. How many times have you heard maybe in one of his songs, maybe it's, it's something that's done before a church or, I'm sorry, before like a, maybe a sporting event or a commencement. Well, we're not going to talk about God. We can't mention God. And they remove it. In Romans chapter 1, verse 28, 32. You can turn there if you want or you can follow along. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 28. I want you to hear where this word is used again about being boastful. Paul's looking and he's looking at the people of this time and he's saying, you know what? This is the way mankind is right now. He says, they thought it was foolish to acknowledge God. Aren't there people out there? It's like, we're not going to mention God. We're not going to talk about God, right? So he abandoned them to their foolish thinking. He let them do things that should never be done. Basically, their lives became full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, envy, murder, murder, quarreling, deception, malicious behavior, and gossip. They are backstabbers, backstabbers, sorry. They're haters of God, insolent, proud, and boastful. Smack dab right in the middle. There's that second time this word is used in the New Testament. They invent new ways of sinning. They disobey their parents. They refuse to understand. They break their promises. They're heartless. They have no mercy. They know God's justice requires that those who do these things deserve to die, yet they do them anyway. Worse yet, they encourage others to do them as well and join right in, right? Paul is describing a very godless society there in Romans chapter 1, verses 28 to 32. A culture that's living apart from God. They're filled with all kinds of unrighteous living. And boasters is smack dab right in the middle of all those words, all those descriptions of this godless society. Basically, a group of people have taken moral absolutes, moral truths, and have basically said, we don't need them, and they've tossed them off to the side. It's an anti-God culture. And so basically, this anti-God culture, when you take God out of it, guess what you do? You live in a very unrighteous way. And that's what they're doing. And they're doing it with a bold and a very proud attitude saying, we know better than you. Isn't that true of those who do not live according to God's word? They live their life basically saying, this way works. Your way is foolish, outdated, old, obsolete. But the way we're doing it, get with it. There's a new way of living. It's a very proud and arrogant attitude. Very anti-God. This arrogant, snooty, high and mighty believing that they should set agenda for everybody else. Basically, when you remove God, you believe that you should take the authority and you place it over others. That's that boastful, proud person that Paul's talking about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. I don't need God. So who is then God in your life? Let me answer that for you. You. Does that make sense? That's why they're so proud and boastful is because they've taken out God. They are now the God of their life. They're the ones that make decisions. They're the ones that say, this is the way life should be. And they don't need God in there. 
First Peter chapter 5, verse 5 says this, In the same way, you who are younger must accept the authority of the elders. And all of you dress yourselves in humility. Wake up in the morning, put on humility. It's not about me, God. As you relate to one another, you are wearing that humility. Listen to this. It goes on to say this in 1 Peter 5, 5. Listen very carefully. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud. Look at the person next to you and tell them God opposes the proud. Tell them. Look to another person, tell them, God opposes the proud. We need to tell each other this. Think about this. Because if I am a proud person and it's all about me, I want to let you know something. God opposes you. You know what that word opposes mean? It means to take battle. Any of you want to battle with God today? Do you think you can win? Name a war that God fought and lost. That's what I thought. Crickets. Okay? There is none. God always wins. And Peter's saying, listen, God opposes the proud. You want to take on God? Oh, be a proud person. You'll lose every time. So you have these people there. They're high-minded. They're immoral agenda setters who, who also be these called blasphemers or scoffing at God. That's such a good churchy word, isn't it? Blasphemer. Did you ever hear somebody say, it's like you get along, you're reading the Bible, and, and then they met Jesus, and, and they called out, blasphemer. You almost want to say it that way. Like, it's, it's a good churchy word. You're walking around saying, man, I can't believe the way they're blaspheming right now. And you're like, whoa, church man, what are you saying? Right? None of us even know what that means. We just hear it, and it's like, man. It's like the only time you hear that is when, I, you know what the first picture that comes to my mind? Is when Jesus is on the cross, you got all those religious leaders down, and, oh, blasphemer. You know, you know what I'm talking about? It's this kind of picture that comes to my mind. But this word means to speak discourteously. It means to slander. It means to bring about abusive and degrading accusations against those whom you don't agree with. Basically, it can refer to speaking against man or speaking against God. It can be used either way. But Paul's saying that these boasting people, these people who are going to be removing God and replacing life with situational ethics, will mock They'll slander and speak ill against God and those who are righteous and conduct themselves in moral standards. These people look at God and they slander him. They will look at you if you hold up God's word to be absolute truth. That you live by, guess what? You will be made fun of too. They will slander you. They will mock you. Because of you standing on truth. So today, if you believe the Bible is God's authoritative truth, where we find our moral absolutes, you will be made fun of. That's the way it is. You'll be taunted. You'll be persecuted by those who are proud and boastful. Now, the list continues on. It says this. They'll be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, blaspheming, right? Disobedient to their parents. Oh, Oh, let's hang on that one for a while, right, kids? Oh, wait, by the, by the way, if your parents are still alive, you're still, you're still under that as well. My mom's at, what, 85, okay? 
I still need to be obedient to my mom. Just because I moved out of the house doesn't mean I'm no longer under this biblical command. Okay? In those last days when situational ethics are reigning, and which we see that going on right now, and biblical absolutes are being thrown out, Paul said there's going to be an epidemic emergence of disobedience to parents. The word Paul uses for disobedience is a pythes, and that Greek... I know, it sounds like a pie in the face, right? A pythes, okay? That Greek word right there means basically this, unpersuadable, uncontrollable. Basically this, if you can't persuade or control your kids to do something, they're unleadable, they're uncoachable, they're wild, right? Paul's saying there'll be a time when parents can no longer persuade their kids to do anything. They can't control their kids, they can't lead their kids or exercise authority over their children. Do we see that today? Since the mid-1960s, there's been a frightening breakdown in the authority once assumed by a child towards their parents. Several years ago, a judge in Orlando, Florida, and you may remember this case, ruled that an 11-year-old boy had the right to seek a divorce from his parents so that he could be adopted by another foster family. Now, though there are only a few legal divorces from parents by children, it's far more common that young people basically just disregard their parents. Let me read this article to you. This is about 15 years ago. A 13-year-old Los Angeles um, area was graffitied. Okay? This 13-year-old boy uh, was involved, and he quoted this in the Los Angeles Times. I think I maybe put this up here. This sort of comes at the end of the quote. Focus on what I'm going to say right here. It goes this. It's like a family you belong to a crew. He's talking about this 13-year-old boy. He's got a gang of friends. We go around doing graffiti, okay? They watch your back. You watch theirs. You kick it every day with them. You get friendship, love, supplies, everything. He also says this, I'll tag anything, okay? Now, I don't care. Well, sort of. I wouldn't like no one to write on my stuff. I do get my own to get up, regardless if people feel that I'm causing damage to property. I'd say the damage I've done is quite a bit. During the day, I carry a screwdriver or a knife for protection. This is a 13-year-old. But at night, I carry a gun. I have three guns. I hide them. My mom took a 38 from me. I'm getting it back. When asked about once when he got caught, he said this, and this is what's on my screen. My parents sort of talked to me about it. Of course, they told me, don't do it again. But I'm not going to listen. They don't have to know about it. That's a prevalent attitude out there. Not with all kids, praise God. But there are young people out there that this is their attitude towards their parents. And parents are at a loss. Some parents don't know how to lead. They try to be friends instead of being parents, and that backfires. They reward in the wrong manner. We bribe our kids and we tell them, do this and we'll reward you, instead of, you know what, I'm just telling you, this is what you need to do. It just be, should just be obedience, but instead we've got to warn or reward, right? We know that because of situational ethics has become the new law, parents are even fearful to discipline their kids. I don't know if I should discipline my child because I might be arrested for child abuse. 
Now, I get it. Some children have been protected by those laws, and praise God that those children who are being abused can be protected by the law, but at the same time, that law also prohibits parents from disciplining their children as they should to help them. These are the events that are going to occur in the last days. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to happen to you, but it's going to happen to the lost world, not the church. Now, I want to take you to a story in the Bible these last few minutes here. It's a crazy story. Because I want to show you what happens when you remove God. Because as we read 2 Timothy chapter 3, what do we read? Boastful, proud, blaspheming, scoffing to God, and disobedient to parents. Those situations right there, what Paul is saying is like, listen, God's going to get removed, and basically you're going to be God. You're going to do whatever you want to do, whatever feels right, to whenever you want, to whoever you want. Because that's really what Paul's describing here, right? What kind of world is that? If you would, turn to Judges chapter 19. And this is what's going to happen. You're not going to be able to follow along because I'm going to tell the story pretty quick. But I want you to know where it is. You can go back and read it in more detail. But there's a story that took place after Moses. Everybody knows Moses, right? Led the children of Israel out of Egypt. It was awesome. It was great. Opened up the Red Sea. They went across, right ground. They went to the Promised Land. They couldn't enter the Promised Land yet. Moses dies. Joshua takes over. Joshua now is like, all right. Now I'm taking you into the promised land. And they go into the promised land. We remember the great stories, especially the Jericho. and we, Such a great story, right? But Joshua dies. Now follow this timeline. We've got Moses and we've got Joshua. And then there's Joshua dies. Now there's a time span of three, four hundred years. And then there's David, shepherd boy, soon to be king, right? But there's this gap in here and it's called the judges, okay? That's a time period of these judges, now remember that during that time there was 12 distinct tribes. We, we go from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. From these 12 sons are 12 tribes that just expand and grow. That's big. Okay? There's no king during this time because God is king. And he's given them a law. A law which they should obey. God's word, right? Judges were basically put in place to make sure this law was obeyed. And if the law wasn't obeyed, the judges sort of stepped in and said, no, 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 we need to make sure these laws are being kept, being followed by the people. We need to make sure you people are following God. And if there's any kind of things, that situations that rise up in an enemy country comes in, these judges helped bring an end to the conflict. Now, here's the problem, though. After Joshua dies in this period of judges... A lot of bad stuff happened because what would happen was the people would basically disobey. And then there would be disaster as a result of their disobedience and then they would be delivered because they'd seek God for forgiveness. And it's just a vicious cycle kept going around. Disobey, disaster, deliverance. Disobey, disaster, deliverance. Just kept going around and around in the book of Judges, okay? But at the end of the book, there's a crazy story that reflects how bad the situation became. It reflects what happens to us when we do what we want to do and leave God out of the picture. Which again, I'm going back to what Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3. That we're going to be what? Boastful and proud and uh, scoffing of God and blaspheming, right? And disobeying our parents. Because why? I want to do what I want to do. You can't tell me what to do. Because it's my choice, right? 
Go back to Judges now. Let's look at the story. Here's, here's the way it goes. It all starts in Judges 19. Now, like I said, I'm going to condense this story for you, sort of roll through it quickly, okay? So here's this Levite. He's from Ephraim, okay? He has this concubine. Now, for those of you who know what a concubine is, okay, it's not one of those things you harvest corn with, okay? Or wheat, okay? Yeah, it's a combine, okay? And it's not a compacted porcupine, okay? It's... <laughs> I love your laugh. I was waiting for a snort. I really was. A concubine, it's one of those words that we really, we look at the Bible and say, well, who came up with this? Okay. It's a combination between a servant and a wife and a little bit more of whatever, okay? I know it's sort of weird, okay? Go back in the Bible, read about it, okay? But here's this Levite. He has this concubine. Now, they're together. Life is good. But they have a fight. They quarrel. She leaves him. She goes back home to her father. They're gone for four months. Finally, Levi says, you know what? I'm missing my wife slash servant slash concubine. And so he packs up with his donkeys and his servant, and they take off to the father-in-law's. So he goes back there, tries to win her back. Now, so he's there. He arrives at his father-in-law's house. The girl sees him. She welcomes him. She makes him feel at home. It's like, okay, everything's good, right? Let's go home, honey. But before they can go home, the father-in-law's like, hey, no, 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 no. Why don't you stay here and eat with me and drink with me and hang out for a little bit? So they, they eat and they drink, and he has a little too much, and he goes to sleep. And he wakes up the next day. He's like, okay. Let's go, honey. He's like, no, no, no. The father-in-law's like, just stay here and let's have a good time. Let's talk some more and let's eat some more and let's drink some more. And so they basically party all day. And next day comes around. This goes on and on and on and on. He stayed with them three days. They feasted, they drank, they slept. After five days, on the fifth day, he wakes up early in the morning. And now finally, the, the, the Levite's like, we need to go. But the girl's father's like, no, just have some breakfast. Have some breakfast before you go. All right, we'll have some breakfast. After eating breakfast, well, I need to go. No, don't go. And he starts this cycle again, right? Back and forth, day slips on, eat and drink it together again. But now it's getting late in the afternoon. And finally, the Levite says, okay, no, no, no. We got to go. We are going. So he grabs his concubine. He grabs his servant. He grabs the donkeys. Everything's ready to roll. And they head out. Now, as they are leaving, you need to understand this. Traveling at night was, one, not a good thing. Two, for safety of trying to work your way down the road. Other thing was because of thieves and other people that you could attack you, okay? So as it's getting dark, they've got to figure out a place to stay. Well, as they're going, they pressed on. They finally got to a place of Giva, okay? Which also belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. So there's this little town there. The Levite went to the town square. He gets into the town square of Giva, and here's what tradition works. You get to the middle of town square. There's no hotels or whatever. You're thinking where I'm going to check in. What happens is you hang out at the town square until somebody comes along and says, ah, oh, you're a stranger in town. You need a place to stay? Yep, come on in. Because by tradition, you showed hospitality to strangers, and you took them in. You gave them a place to stay. Whether it's in your house or maybe out back, you brought them in. You took care of them. So this is what happens. They're there in the middle of town, but nobody invited them in. And it's getting late. They're starting to wonder what's going to happen. Late in the evening, an old gentleman is coming in from town. He lives there. He had been out in the country. And he sees them there. And he says, where are you going? Where are you from? The Levite answers. He said, we're just passing through. But nobody's invited us in for the night. 
We don't want any trouble. We've, we've got food and straw for our donkeys, bread and wine for the woman, young man and me. We, we don't need anything. So if you're following me right now, we have a Levite, we have a concubine, a servant, and an old man. Everybody following me? Okay? Okay, because this is where the story gets really weird. Okay? It's really weird. The old man said, you're not going to spend the night in the town square, so come back with me to my house. He takes him home, feed the donkeys, everybody gets settled. Now, while they're relaxing and enjoying themselves, wicked men in the city come pounding and surrounding the house. They start pounding at the door. And they yelled for the owner of the house. The old man, listen, he goes, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him. Now, this wasn't meant as gratification, but as humiliation. Yeah, it's in the Bible, I know. Judges chapter 19. Now, the owner of the house went to the door and said, Brothers, no, don't do this obscene thing. Don't do this. This man is my guest. Don't commit this outrageous act. Look, my, my, my virgin daughter's here. The concubine's here. He goes, take them and do whatever you want to do with them. Like, really? This is okay. This isn't making sense, right? But the men wouldn't listen. We don't want them. We want the man in the house. The Levite pushed his concubine out the door and shut it. They took the concubine, and I'm not going to read what happened next. You can read it in your own. But basically the next day the Levite wakes up, opens the door, and there's his concubine beaten and dead. He lifted her up onto the donkey, set out for home, and he is angry. This was his wife. This was his servant. He had a relationship with her. He loved her. Which doesn't make sense why he pushed her out the door, right? So he got home and he wrote a letter to all 12 tribes. And he's like, I want you to know what happened here. And he explained the horrific story, but he put an exclamation point mark on his story. When he got home, he took a knife, dismembered his concubine into 12 pieces, and sent a piece of her body with every letter to each tribe. Hmm. When this arrived at each tribe and the people read this, they were fuming. He said, say to every man in Israel, has such a thing as this ever happened from the time the Israelites came out of the land of Egypt till now? Hey, when Moses left, has this ever happened since Moses left Egypt? No. Think about it. Talk it over. Do something. Signs it off. Brand new low for that nation. All the people of Israel came out from all the tribes. The congregation, they met in the presence of God at Mizpah. It says they were all there as one person. So all the tribes united, basically, except one, the Benjamites, from where this city happened, right? From Giba. The leaders of all the people representing all the tribes and nations, the army, they took their places, they gathered God's people, they decided no one, they, they were so mad, they, like, they started coming up with all kinds of things. Well, first of all, nobody's allowed to ever marry a Benjamite again. No. Nope. And we're going to go to give all that town within the tribe of Benjamin, and we're going to surround it with our army, and we're going to demand that they give over the guilty party of men to us. So they did. So from these 11 tribes, they took these armies, they went to Giva, they surrounded the city, give up the men who did this to this woman. Well, the Benjamites expected this. They knew about the letter. They knew about the body piece. They got one too. So this tribe gathered an army themselves. Only their army went inside of Giva to protect the city. 
So they got 700, it said they got 700 hand-picked fighters, the best. There was another 700 super marksmen who were ambidextrous, both hands, right? They could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. Skilled warriors. Eleven tribes basically said, we're going to attack the city because they're not going to send out these guilty men. Instead, they're going to defend them. So we're going to take our 11 tribes and all the thousands of men we have, we're just going to attack the city. So they got up there early the next morning, they attacked Giva, but the Benjamites poured out of Giva and just devastated the Israelite army. And they retreated back. Day two, the Israelites wake up again and say, let's regroup, let's, let's go back and attack again. They went back and they attacked again, and the same results. They got defeated and they retreated. On the third day when Israel set out, they took up the same positions, but this time they had a, a different plan. They decided to ambush them. So when the Israelites came to Giva, the Benjamites came out and they waited till the attacking started, and then the Israelites retreated, the Benjamites followed, and then the other Israelites who were outside of the other part of the city came around in and ambushed and went in the city, took it, burned it down, and then attacked from all angles to destroy these Benjamites. When the Benjamites saw what happened and they panicked and they started to get to defeat, some of them actually escaped. Now the Israelites were so angry that the men of Israel came back and they killed all the Benjamites who were in the city. All the men and the animals, they torched the towns, they set everything up in flames, but about 600 men escaped. Now as this anger and, and, and adrenaline started to diminish... Go figure, the 11 tribes all of a sudden step back and go, what did we just do? We just wiped out one of our tribes. What were we thinking? We're 12 tribes strong, now we're 11 because we basically did a little genocide and wiped out one of our tribes. They said this, why, oh God, God of Israel, has this happened? Why do we find ourselves today missing one whole tribe from Israel? So the people were feeling sorry for Benjamin and their brothers, and they said, okay, today one tribe is cut off from Israel. How can we get our wives back for those who are left? Because there's 600 men left. How can we get wives for them? Now remember, they made an oath not to give their daughters in marriage to the Benjamites, right? Can't go back on an oath. So they thought about this. Wait a minute. When we gathered and we made this decision, was there anybody not here representing anybody? Were there any cities that didn't send representatives and they didn't fight? And somebody would raise their hand, yep, yep, yep. Jabesh Gilead, that town never showed up. No representatives ever came. Ah, okay. So the 11, this is crazy. The 11 tribes put together another army and they went to Jabesh Gilead. And they went, and this is what their command was, kill every one of Jabesh Gilead, including women and children, burn the city, and that's what they did except for 400 virgin girls. They brought those girls back for all the men of Benjamin to repopulate the tribe. Remember the 600 men without women? They took those 400 from Jabesh Gilead, brought them back. Hey, here you go. Repopulate. Math doesn't add up, though. There's about 200 men that didn't get a wife, right? So another bright idea from somebody said, Hey, I got an idea for those guys that didn't get a woman. Here's what we do. The festival of God is held every year in Shiloh. And they told the Benjamites, here's what you do. For you guys that didn't get a woman, just go hide out there in the vineyards. Stay alert. When you see the Shiloh girls come out to dance, okay, grab one and just take her home and she'll be your wife and hightail it back out of the country into Benjamin. 
Okay? And that's what the Benjamites did. They carried off the girls from the dance, uh, wives enough of every, every number. They got away, went to their inheritance. They rebuilt their, their towns, and they settled back down. And that's the end of the book of Judges. <laughs> no heroes, no great biblical truths like a thou shalt not or these, you know. That's it. That's the end of the book. Anybody remember telling that story to your kids before they went to bed? <laughs> Any Sunday school teachers ever remember telling that one to the kids? Any of you remember being in Sunday school and hearing that story? Probably not, right? That is a crazy story. But listen, this is what I want to bring about. When you look at the final verse, the final verse in this story, Judges chapter 21 Verse 25, it says this. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Did you hear that? Everybody basically did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Does that not sound like 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2? The proud, the boastful, the scoffing of God, the disobedient to parents. I don't need Moral absolutes. I don't need truth. I'm going to do whatever sounds right in my situation. I'm going to do whatever I want to do, when I want to do it, to whomever I want to do it. That was Judges 19 to 21, was it not? That's what Paul's talking about here. Paul warns us in these last days, we're going to abandon God and do whatever we want. Whatever we want, when I want, with who I want, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. But here's the problem. It does hurt somebody. First of all, it hurts you. And it does hurt somebody else. I shared this story probably six years ago about a rowboat. And um, two men went fishing. They got in the rowboat and they went out to the middle of the lake and they started fishing. One took out his fishing pole and started fishing. The other guy in the back, he pulled out a drill. And he started drilling into the seat of his boat. And the guy at the fishing pole is sitting there going, what are you doing? We're supposed to be fishing right now. And you're, you're, what are you doing? And he goes, drilling a hole in my seat. And he's like, but... That, that's, that's not good. It's, it's, you, do you understand what you're doing? And he goes, hey, it's my seat. I'll do whatever I want to do with my seat. He goes, yeah, but it's our boat, and it'll sink the both of us. The guy at the drill is a lot of us who always do this. It's my life. I'll do whatever I want to do with my life. My bad habits, my sinful choices, the things that I want to do, it's my life. It's not hurting anybody. Yeah, it is. It's sinking the boat. Your family members, your church, your friends, your co-workers, your children. Whatever choices you make, they do affect somebody. I shared that story, like I said, with this church probably about five, six years ago when Melinda Robinson sent me a little cork for the boat and with a very positive message, and I really appreciated that. I'll never forget that. But church, listen very carefully. Paul's describing a time in life when people do whatever they want to do. and We can't do whatever we want to do. There is a reason why God gave us absolute truth to live by. John chapter 17 verses 14 to 16 says this. As Jesus is talking with his disciples. He's actually praying to God. And he says, I've given them your word. He's, he's talking to God. He goes, I've given my disciples. Look at this. He's praying about you too right now. 
He's given you His Word. The world hates them, hates you, Christians, because they do not belong to the world, just as I don't belong to this world. I'm not asking you to take them out of this world, but keep them safe from the evil one. Jesus says, you know what? When you become a Christian, God isn't like, all right, you're a Christian, I'm taking you out of the world. It's like, no, no, no. You're in this world, but you don't have to be of this world. And Jesus says, Heavenly Father, I'm praying for this body of believers, for the disciples, for the future Christians, that when you are in this world, that you'll be protected from the evil one. Jesus prayed for you. He says this, look at verse 16. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Church, we don't belong to this world. This is, this is not our home. Don't get comfortable. But look what he says in verse 17. Make them holy by what? Your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Church, I'll say it a hundred times over and over again. The moral absolutes, the truth of God's word is what directs us, what convicts us, what guides us. Without it, we are lost, we're hurting, and we will hurt others. Judges 19 to 21, just go back and read that again sometime. Crazy story, right? But when you do whatever you want to do to whoever you want to do, whenever you want to do it, that is godless living, chaotic, and evil. Paul says, time's coming like that. But as a Christian, don't be living like that. Hold strong to truth. Hold strong to moral absolutes. But that seems so old-fashioned. Praise God for old-fashioned. Amen? I'll be old-fashioned as long as I can be. I don't call it old-fashioned. I call it righteous living. And I want to do what's right in how I live for God. I hope you do too. The Holy Spirit's warned us of what's coming. It's of great importance. That, listen, we teach our children and our grandchildren, ourselves, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to surrender to God of this universe who's in charge. We are not in charge. He is in charge. And we need to make sure that his word is the final authority, not our word. Do we believe that and do we live that? Church, I hope so. I hope so. We're not in charge. We like to think it at times, but we're not in charge. Be careful in our boasting and in our pride and our scoffing and our disobedience because that is not what God asks of his children. I encourage you today, church. I encourage you today, implore you, ask you, plead with you. Be solid in God's word. Live righteously. God's in charge. Surrender to him. Let him help you make the decisions. We can't make them on our own. We need his help. Amen? Please stand with me as we pray. And worship team, come forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for being an awesome and mighty God. I thank you, Lord, for your word and for how Paul warned us and said, this is, this is common. And God, I think we see it around us all the time. The pride of man to think that we don't need you. The pride of man to, to make fun of others who love you. The pride of man to say we don't need our parents. That's all wrong. We need you. You are God. We need your word. We need to learn more about you and how to live. Because from apart from you, we can't do anything. And God, we start making crazy decisions. And I think back to the book of Judges, what happened with this Levite man and the, and the 12 tribes of Israel. Your people that basically turned away from you. And when they turned away from you, tried to do it on their own, it was disaster. 
And God, when we look at today, we see disaster. It only makes sense because there's times we turn away from you. What did we expect? So God, as we look at this, God, I ask you to start speaking to this church right now, right where we're standing. Help us, God, to proclaim you as God, to proclaim your words being true, to realize that our selfish choices, that, well, this situation's okay for me to do. No, it's not. If you don't want us to do it, then we shouldn't do it. Convict us, God. If we've made mistakes, God, we need to seek forgiveness of you right now. God, we know you're worthy to forgive us of our sins, and we thank you for that. God, I pray right now, too, that as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, as those who have confessed with our mouths that you are God, help us to shine for you. Oh, we're going to live for you, we're going to shine for you, and we'll probably be made fun of. So be it. So be it. Help us be bold and courageous. Help us be obedient to our parents. Help us to be humble. Because God, I do not want to oppose you. (laughs) I'd be sorely defeated. God, we love you and we thank you for this time we've come here to worship you. God, as we sing this song, keep speaking to our hearts. We've got to take care of business right where we're at. We'll pray. If we need to come forward to the steps and just take a knee and pray, we can pray there. We can pray at our seats. But God, keep doing business in our hearts as we sing to you. In thy name we pray.